On November 20th, 1917, German soldiers on the Western Front saw something that had never been seen in the history of warfare. They witnessed over 400 lumbering metal beasts headed their way. If they tried to shoot it, the bullets would just bounce off. They were some of the first people to be introduced to tank warfare. Learn more about the history of the tank, how they were developed, and how they changed warfare on this episode of Everything Everywhere Daily. This episode is sponsored by ButcherBox. Summer is right around the corner, and that means cookouts. No matter what your preferred food is for a cookout or a barbecue, ButcherBox can help you make it the best. If you want to serve up some hamburgers, ButcherBox has grass-fed ground beef to make the perfect smash burger. Want to cook up some steaks? Well, ButcherBox has that too, with some of the best cuts of steak, such as New York Strip, ribeye, and filet mignon. Do you like grilled chicken? Well, ButcherBox has some of the best pasture-raised chicken that you will find anywhere. And if you really want to wow people at your next cookout, you can try grilling some of their wild-caught salmon on a cedar plank. Sign up at ButcherBox.com daily and get a special deal. ButcherBox is offering my listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com daily and use code daily to choose your free-for-a-year offer plus get $20 off your first order. This episode is sponsored by Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. I recently had the chance to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond, and I can attest to its exceptional aromas with hints of caramel and vanilla intertwining with its oakiness, which provide a well-rounded flavor profile. Taking a sip is akin to experiencing a piece of bourbon history firsthand. Heaven Hill Distillery may be America's most quintessential bourbon distillery. Established in 1935 after the end of Prohibition, the distillery was established by the Shapira family and has remained a family-owned distillery to this day. In 1897, Congress passed the Bottled in Bond Act, which set forth strict rules for any bourbon labeled Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond bourbon goes beyond the stringent requirements of the law by aging its bourbon for seven years, not four. The end result is a gold medal-winning bourbon that truly stands out. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill, bottled in bond. Heaven Hill reminds you, think wisely, drink wisely. The history of warfare can be thought of as a constant back and forth between offense and defense. Someone developed the spear, and then someone else developed the shield in response. Someone built city walls, and someone else built a catapult to attack those walls. So, in light of that, It isn't surprising that putting people in a metal box would be seen to be an almost inevitable response to being shot at with guns. The first known idea of something that could be considered a tank actually came from Leonardo da Vinci. He drew designs for something which is now known as Leonardo's fighting vehicle. It sort of looked like a flying saucer or maybe a fortified paper umbrella. It was designed to be made out of wood and reinforced with metal, and there would be men inside and a series of small hand cannons which ring the vehicle and according to the design, it would have been propelled by men inside who moved it by turning gears. Leonardo's device was never built, but the idea of an armored, protected platform that you could shoot out of but not get hit in return was always there. The problem was creating an armored shell. Battleships had basically done that in the 19th century. The problem, however, was mobility. 
Moving around an armored cart with horses wasn't really a solution because the horses would be vulnerable. And even if you put the horses into an enclosed protected space, they probably wouldn't like it and might act out. That simple idea of an armored space was in need of a means of propulsion. And that came with the invention of the automobile. However, it required more than just the invention of the internal combustion engine. An armored vehicle covered with iron and steel is, by its very nature, heavy. Moreover, wars aren't necessarily fought where there are roads. A heavy armored vehicle would need to travel over rough terrain, and regular wheels just couldn't cut it. They would eventually sink into soft soil. This was a problem that had already been encountered with large tractors. The solution to the problem came in 1907 by a Californian by the name of Benjamin Holt. He filed a patent on the first functioning continuous crawler track. Other people had thought of similar systems before, but he came up with the first practical system that actually worked. The continuous track allows a vehicle to spread its weight over a much larger area than a wheel or a tire would. What turned the tank into a reality was the First World War. Almost immediately, in the first days of the war, people were thinking of the creation of something very tank-like. Less than a month after the start of the war, the French military engineer, Colonel Jean-Baptiste Eugène Estienne, said, quote, Victory in this war will belong to the belligerent, who was the first to put a cannon on a vehicle capable of moving in all kinds of terrain. End quote. Estienne was thinking in terms of artillery, and at the time he said it, he had no clue what was going to be happening in the upcoming war. As trench warfare set in, the entire Western Front ended up becoming a massive stalemate. The Allies were looking for something that could break through the stalemate and counter the defensive trenches and fortifications which had been built up. There were all sorts of experiments and attempts at building what they called land ships. One French idea was called a Boreau machine, which was basically a vehicle that was a giant tank tread that surrounded the actual vehicle with everything inside of it. The designs which had the most success were those that used the Holt tractors as the basis of the vehicle. And by the way, the word tank actually came from a British code word used for the project because they looked like water tanks. And the word just sort of caught on after that in many different languages. The first tank which saw service was the British Mark I tank. It was used at the Battle of the Somme in 1916. If you've seen a World War I-era tank photo, you've probably seen the Mark I or one of the Marks very close to it. It sort of looks like a rhombus with two treads that went around the entire body of the tank. There were 49 of these tanks used at the Somme. However, they had limited success. These first tanks were not equipped with large guns. They were mostly designed to roll over barbed wire, cross trenches, and provide a spearhead for the infantry. The first real success of tanks came in November 20, 1917, at the Battle of Cambrai. There, over 400 tanks took part in an attack and were able to push six miles into German lines over a seven-mile-wide front. As this was still the early days of tank warfare, there were still many different designs that were used in combat. The British, French, and Americans all had multiple different models which were used over the course of the war. The real impact of the tank wasn't felt until the last few months of the conflict. Knowledge about how to use tanks effectively was accumulated rapidly over the course of the war. After the war, German General Erich Ludendorff said that the Allied tanks were one of the primary reasons for the German defeat. After the war, every country took notice of how effective tanks were. They evolved beyond just infantry support vehicles. Countries developed dedicated tank corps. Armor improved as the engines improved, and they were also equipped with larger guns. The strategy around tank warfare was also changed. As vehicles improved, they began to be viewed as more primary weapons. In France, Charles de Gaulle advocated this doctrine, but it was never formally adopted by them. 
The start of World War II in 1939 radically changed how the tank was perceived. While many countries were slow to change their doctrines to fully integrate tanks, the Germans were not. The invasion of Poland and how quickly it happened surprised the world. A big part of how quickly they were able to move was due to relying on mechanization, in particular, tanks. As with the First World War, the Second World War led to rapid evolution in tanks by both sides. And I don't want to get into all the various models that both sides used over the course of the war, because if I get that far into the weeds, I could spend several episodes on it. I will say that the development of the tank was a constant battle of trying to balance several things. You wanted a gun that was large enough to take out other tanks, and armor which could protect you from other tanks. However, too big of a gun and too much armor, you couldn't maneuver and you'd use too much fuel. And on top of all that, you had to have a design that could be mass-produced and was reliable and easy to maintain in the field. I will make a special note of the largest tank battle in history, which took place during World War II, the Battle of Kursk. That battle saw over 10,000 tanks on the battlefield on both sides. The war also saw the first use of personal anti-tank weapons, the rocket-propelled grenade, commonly called a bazooka. A rocket-propelled grenade is in fact rocket-propelled, but it's not a regular grenade. Piercing the armor of a tank is very difficult, and a plain old grenade that you throw can't do it. Anti-tank weapons make use of something called the Monroe effect, or a shaped charge. A regular explosion will blast energy outward in every direction. A shaped charge will focus much of the blast onto a single point. Shaped charges are pretty much necessary to effectively penetrate the thick armor of a tank. After the war, tank designs got more sophisticated. Warsaw Pact countries settled on similar designs, whereas NATO countries developed many different models that weren't interoperable. One development was the creation of composite armor. Composite armor is armor made from many different layers of different materials, including ceramics, plastic, metals, and actually even air. It's designed to be lighter and stronger than traditional plate armor, however, it's also much more expensive to produce, so it's usually only used on the most vulnerable parts of a tank. Given its incredibly dense nature, depleted uranium has been used for both tank armor and in anti-tank ammunition. Depleted uranium is just uranium with much of the U-235 removed. It's basically what's left over after the process of enrichment. Coupled with a shaped charge, a depleted uranium round can go through most tank armor. The biggest counter to shaped charge ammunition has been reactive armor. If you see images of tanks on the news, you might notice that they're covered with something that looks like panels or sometimes even bags. Those are reactive armor panels. Most of them are designed to explode on impact. And you might think it's odd that you'd cover a tank with explosives, but the purpose is to counter a shaped charge blast. When it's hit, it will explode outward, neutralizing much of the power of the shaped charge. There's also a type of reactive armor called electric armor, which uses an electric charge to vaporize incoming projectiles. There have also been major advances in anti-tank weapons. The old bazooka required the person firing the weapon to be rather close and within line of sight. The Cold War saw the development of anti-tank missiles. Wire-guided missiles were introduced in the 1950s and 1960s, which allowed the person firing the weapon to guide it to its target. And this could be done from a much further distance than a bazooka. These missiles have shrunk such that they can be shoulder-fired by infantry now. Missiles like the Javelin anti-tank missile and the next-generation light anti-tank weapon, or NLAW, have made tanks extremely vulnerable to common infantry soldiers. These modern anti-tank weapons also use what is known as a tandem warhead. Two warheads are fired out of the same missile, the first of which is designed to activate the reactive armor, and the second is designed to take out the tank. Likewise, tanks have also been extremely vulnerable to ground-attack aircraft, attack helicopters, and now drones. 
The disparity between offense and defense has swung to a point where the tank might be on its way out, or at least might change considerably. A $70,000 Javelin missile or a $25,000 NLAWS rocket can take out a tank that costs 2 to $15 million apiece. The United States Marine Corps announced in 2021 that they were getting rid of their tanks. Many military strategists now think that they're too slow, consume too much fuel, and are too vulnerable to cheap anti-tank weapons and aircraft to still be used in the role that they once did. To give you an idea of how much fuel they consume, the M1 Abrams tank, which is the primary tank of the U.S. Army, consumes 500 gallons, or 1,900 liters of fuel, to travel 289 miles or 466 kilometers. That's almost two gallons per mile. That requires a massive amount of fuel and logistics, which can slow down an army. I don't think we've seen the end of the tank, but we may very well have seen the end of the primacy of the tank. They've become too expensive, too slow, and simply too vulnerable. In the span of a century, we might have seen the rise and the fall of the tank as a primary weapon of war. Everything Everywhere Daily is an Airwave Media Podcast. The associate producers are Thor Thompson and Peter Bennett. Today's review comes from listener Iodeji over at Podcast Addict. They write, Where do I start? I found Gary's Everything Everywhere Daily through Stephen Kotowicz's Tesla podcast episode, and I've been hooked ever since. It's so clear, simple, and engaging. Absolutely the only podcast I have recommended to friends and connections on LinkedIn. It's ideal for all ages, even my toddlers pay attention, and I hope Gary gets all the listener numbers he needs to make the podcast a sustained success. Thanks, Gary. Well, thank you, Iodeji. I admit I never intended the show to be for kids, but I've had many people reach out to me who say that they listen to it with their children. And just know, I will always keep the language in the podcast such that you can listen to it with your children, and it will be as family-friendly as history will allow. Remember, if you leave a review or send me a boostagram, you too can have it read on the show.